New to the living healthy lifestyle or a healthy living veteran, this is your place for honest answers. Naturally savvy with registered holistic nutritionist Andrea Donsky and health journalist Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Naturally Savvy. My fabulous co-host, Andrea, is away today. I'm Lisa Davis. I love to talk about food, and I love to talk to fun people. And I have got the perfect person today. Her name is Natasha. She is fabulous. Nosh with Tosh. If you want to laugh and learn how to cook and see someone gorgeous, uh, I highly recommend you go to noshwithtosh.com. I was watching your video on Branzino, which is funny. I recently just heard of that. And you know when you hear something and all of a sudden you're like, why do I keep hearing people talk about Branzino? It's such a great phenomenon. Yes. And you start with a song. And I said, this reminds me of what I do in my videos. And I love when you can combine humor with actually teaching people something good and how to cook. So I just think you're absolutely fabulous. Your last name is Feldman. I'm just like, this is Natasha. Look her up. Up, um, <laughs> Natasha Tosh Feldman. You're a Webby-nominated, classically trained chef. Wow, that is so cool. So, first of all, when did you first get interested in cooking? You know, I did not start cooking until much later than most people who work in the field. I didn't start cooking until I was like a, a sophomore or a junior in college, which is a part of how. You know, I really wanted to wrap this story of you don't need to have cooked forever, right? Like cooking is not the kind of thing where if you didn't start whittling away at wood when you were like really small, you were never going to catch up with your friends. I feel like it's the kind of thing that at any age you can pick up and really love and get to know and it can become a really wonderful part of your life. So yeah, I was, I was actually studying Shakespeare wow. in London oh when gosh. I was like, I'm going into food. Really? Now that is so interesting. Wow. Thank you. Oh Just a little gosh. tidbit for you. That is, see, I've never understood Shakespeare. My husband loves it. I'm like, I don't know what the heck they're talking about, I, I, but I do like food. <laughs> yes. So how does I mean, that even there's happen? There's recipes of different types, you know? Right. That is so cool. Okay, so you're classically trained. So for people that obviously I'm guessing you went to culinary school or how does this work? Yes. Now, this is actually a part of my um, resume that I want to change because, oh. I yes, I did go to culinary school. But I feel like uh, the truth is um, a few weeks before graduating, somebody took my finger, put it in a heavy piece of machinery on accident, and smushed it into a bunch of pieces. Oh, my God. Very exciting. Wow. So I never actually graduated. So I want to change the culinary school dropout. Oh, <laughs> culinary school dropout. See, I got you and I. <laughs> yeah, go back to culinary school. Exactly. Yes. I love it. You got to get back to this finger thing because that's because we got a lot of time today. We're going to have fun. I'm like blown away. My God, how <laughs> awful that must have been. It's an interesting thing to have happen to you. I, it, it, it's this crazy machine called a Duchess dough divider, which actually is quite handy if you want to make large portions of anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a really innocent mistake, but it actually turned out to be one of the best things for me. Really? And that's one of the best things about, about, you know, letting your life sort of go on its natural path. Because right. as soon as I was taking a hiatus, I got pulled in to start assisting teaching cooking classes because I just met this dynamic, amazing person uh, when I was in a store. And he was like, do you want to assist cooking classes for me? And I was like, is this creepy or is this real? I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Here I go. Right. And, and through doing that, 
I sort of discovered that there was this really amazing hybrid that I could sort of foster, which was performance and cooking and finding ways to sort of bring that like what's going to happen next kind of reality that you have when you're, you know, performing live with someone into cooking, which is just, you know, like the complete jackpot for me. So it, the the finger breaking and the culinary school dropouting was really what led me here rather than having a more traditional path, you know, being in a kitchen and and uh doing that. So I feel I feel very fortunate. Oh, that is so good. Well, you know, like I said, I was just captivated by you and your energy and the way you cook and what you talk about and your recipes. Oh my gosh. They look so phenomenal. I mean, brown rice that doesn't suck. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's talk about that. What what's going on yeah. with brown rice? Because honestly, I just throw it in my rice cooker, and I always put a I put less water than they require because I kind of like a little toothiness. But then sometimes mm-hmm. it's a little too toothy. Where my daughter <laughs> likes it like regular, like it's supposed to be. Where you're not like, mom, this right. rice is hard. Um, so t- let's just talk about this. Tell us about tomorrow. Yeah. Exactly. Let's talk about brown rice. How, how do you make it? Oh, my gosh. So the first thing is you've got to start with the correct rice, right? Like there are rices of every length, shape, and size that you could imagine. And I really like a short grain brown rice, short to medium. The long grain brown rice gets soft so fast. And I think that, you know, especially for long grain rice, your technique is accurate. If you really cook the heck out of a long grain rice, it turns into like porridge, which is not what we're going for. So I I always say start with short grain um, or medium grain. Get something that's organic. Um, you know, it's it's usually just you're going to yield a better product. And with the brown rice, because it sometimes has it has like the endosperm and the germ and all the additional pieces, it can have like a little bit of a heartier taste that I think people don't like. So that's why when I do it, I always start off with a base that's really flavorful. So I'll saute some onions and then add herbs. For people that haven't watched the show yet, I'm the herb queen. Like mm, putting I love herb that. on anything is like it's my it's my personal Portlandia. Put a bird on it. I'm like oh put God. herbs on it and it's better, <laughs> right? We're meant to be friends. Photo. Oh my God, Portlandia! That put a bird on it cracks. My husband and I will just do that <laughs> random. We'll be like looking at something. I'll be like put a bird on it, and I'll be like put a bird on it. If you haven't seen this, people go watch Portlandia and put a bird on it. It's so funny. Uh, yes, yeah, that's me. But instead, I'm like put a herb on it. Just put a herb on it. It's gonna be fixed. Yeah. So I take. Um, caramelized onions and you know when you caramelize onions you have to actually caramelize it none of this two to three minutes nonsense no it takes so much longer (laughs) it does and people don't want to give the onions the time but the truth is the amount of attention to detail that properly sauteing an onion takes is so much less work than having to build flavor in any other way. It's like, just walk away for a few minutes, you know, let them do their thing. You want to caramelize them just a little bit. You want to bring out the natural sugars, give it a minute. And then I add in a bunch of herbs and I stick it in my blender. So it makes just a base um, that you can then cook the rice in. And I think it just adds way more flavor without a ton of extra time. And the thing that's great about it is you can manipulate it for any kind of cuisine across the world, right? Like I did mine with um, dill and mint and parsley, which is more 
Middle Eastern or you know, Eastern European, but you could do it with um, cilantro and do it more, you know, as a Mexican rice or this, you know, across any variety of of herbs that you would use in any type of cuisine. So it's just a great. I always try to make recipes where, like, yes, this is the recipe, but if you step one step further, we're just learning a technique. So once you ha- once you can do this, like you mentioned the Branzino episode, like the idea is these are the spices, these are the flavorings we're using while preparing this fish, but the real trick is how do we get this fish from Murata cooked in an easy, delicious way? And then from there, you know, once you master it, you can add whatever the heck you want into it. Oh, exactly. You know, you were on Home and Family recently, which is so cool. And I love ta- them. Yeah, they're so fun. You were talking about yeah. healthy weeknight meals, sustainable seafood. So lately I've just been like, okay, I'm just going to go grab rotisserie chicken and some frozen vegetables or some fresh vegetables and just do this and that. But I'm not really, I feel like I'm spending too much money. I'm not prepping enough food. So talk to me and all the other busy people out there about what we can do to, you know, cook more. Yeah, I think this is, a really smart thing to talk about. The thing that I want to say before talking about it is that sometimes the reality of your life is just that that is what it is. I think there's so much pressure to make dinner every night beautiful and wonderful. And that's part of the reason I made this show in the first place because having worked in food production, um, which is, you know, after teaching cooking classes, I went into that. I know how much goes into making this food look great for the most part. And I think that it, discourages people from cooking because things take a long time and we can work together, you know, to figure out easier way to make dinner on the table and to make it yummy and quick and something that makes you feel good about yourself. But also there's another part of the reality, which is just is you're not going to do that every night, right? Like there are, there are days, there are weeks, there are honestly even months, I think in people's lives where you just have to lean more heavily on foods that are more prepared because that is just the truth. And I could tell you how to make an easy dinner every single night of the week, but sometimes you're not even going to have that time. So I think it's sort of almost starting with one step back and looking at your life really holistically, like all of the things that you're doing right and all of the ways that you're really trying and succeeding and being like, I'm already doing good. I'm going to now add this additional thing on top of it. And it's not like, how do I remove the guilt? It's how do I even further enhance the things that I'm doing? So I feel like that's the starting point. Tell me some good ways in our audience to get cooking. I love it. So I think one of, especially for this time of year, something that's really easy to incorporate into your life is a pureed soup. Because you can lean in on, we already talked about onions, you can lean on things that have a lot of built-in flavor already. So, like, lean into onions that you saute. Lean into things like coconut milk and curry paste and things that are just really flavorful and they're going to add dynamic qualities. And all you have to do to make a really good pureed soup is have a few vegetables that are on the heartier side, which is perfect, you know, like a pumpkin, a sweet potato, a carrot. Um, even like apples, things like that will do as sort of a backbone. And simply take your sautéed onions, a vegetable stock or a chicken stock, which you can make or not. I usually make stocks in huge batches. So I'll take um, chicken bones, which you can get from the store, or when you make a – when you eat the rotisserie chicken that you felt guilty about because it came from the store, just save the bones and be like, I'm going to make a stock with it. Yes, I do. I usually throw it in the crock pot and make a bone broth out of it. 
that's good, right? Okay. I'm always like, keep your bones, keep your veggie scraps, put all the stuff in the freezer. And then when you do have time to make a stock, you just boil it with water and then, you know, stick it back in the freezer so it's there when you have it. But I don't know why I always forget about the veggie parts. Like I'll cut off the little tip of the carrot or I'll cut off the, you know, this or that. And I never think about that. I don't, because I'm always like, how do you make a vegetable stock? I figure you always just take full vegetables and throw them in, but is it really using the scraps or do people do both? People do both, but I, whenever I scrape carrots, you know, I, whenever, when I remember, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I take the scraps, I put them in a Ziploc bag, I close it and that thing goes in the freezer and then it's just there. So I don't feel guilty about throwing as much stuff away. And I'm also basically making free vegetable stock. And then also, if you have whole carrots and they're they're in your fridge and you're like, are these two limbs? Like, what's happening here? Or a celery where you're like, I don't know about this. Those things too. I just throw them in the freezer. Like when in doubt, I was at a I, I was at a friend's house and she had this bok choy. I basically put my finger through it and I was like, you can still use it for a stock. Like, throw it in the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> That's my good not throwing vegetables away tip, but use your stock. You know, it can be homemade or store-bought. If you're going to buy store-bought, just check. A lot of them have added sugar. If you're going to go out of the way to, you know, cook yourself dinner, you want let's be in control of our own sugar. Right, um, exactly. Look for one that doesn't have it, which is the thing that I'm sure you, you talk about frequently. Um, and then the easiest way to do it is just chop up your vegetables finely, whatever you have, a sweet potato carrots, whatever the heartier vegetables you have lying around are. You can do it with beets as well. And then you just cook them until they're soft and puree them in a blender, right? And then if you want to add a little bit of dairy, you can add a touch of cream. You can add coconut milk. You can go from any any spectrum of, um, you know, the world that you want your, like, flavor profile-wise. I just posted a soup that is um, – Pumpkin, yeah. carrot, mm. ginger, um, onion, I make garlic. I was looking at that. The Thai pumpkin soup, right? <laughs> Thai pumpkin <gasps> soup, right. Looks so good. And then it's leaning into this curry paste that you can purchase at almost any grocery store. And when you're going to make your own food and you want it to be fast, like finding these built-in flavor nuggets are so handy. Um, for busy people. So all I do is I take those things, I puree them in a blender. It takes five minutes to prepare and then you puree it and it lasts in the fridge for days. So leaning into things that are easy to make but will last for me is a huge lifesaver. For winter months, leaning into braised meats, braised chicken, braised short rib, bra- you know. What does braised mean pork. for people who are like not into cooking? Yeah, braising <laughs> is my absolute favorite technique because it just gets better as it sits. And all it means is we're basically going to sear the meat to give it a little bit of color. And then you add liquid and you cook it over a low temperature. Oh, so you're okay. you're cooking it in a way that is allowing the meat to slowly come up to temperature, which means it's not going to get tough. And then you cook it for a long time. So it's like really pull apart tender, delicious amazingness without having to be like really double checking the temp, the internal temperature of it. So that when you want to reheat it, right, it's already like so juicy and delicious that you can reheat it until the end of time and it's still going to taste great. So for me, 
that's yeah, that's so important for like the winter months. So it's, you can just cook up some rice or some pasta or whatever grain you're really into at the moment. And then you can have this braise that you make maybe once or twice a week. And then all you have to do is saute or steam some vegetables or make a salad. And you've got a whole meal, you know, that, that only takes five minutes at a time. Oh, that is nice. You know, it's funny when you're talking about this soup, I just flashed back to maybe like five years ago. I was making this some kind of squash soup. I don't even remember. And I remember it was so good. And I would make a ton. And I just, it, I don't know, somehow the winter went and I just moved on with my life. And I'm like, why? <laughs> what did I, what was that? It was good. And it had a lot of the things you were talking about. So I'm super excited today to go oh, and get good. the ingredients for the Thai pumpkin soup. I also want to talk yeah. more about this foolproof lemon and fennel. I love fennel. Brand Zeno. Uh, that's where you begin the video by singing about the fish, which is lovely. Let's talk about this because fish is so good. And I'm one of those people that my husband will make fish when he cooks on the weekends. And during the week, I just, it's like it doesn't exist. I'm like, oh yeah, fish. I love white fish. What the hell? What, why didn't I make it? <laughs> it? Well, that's because it disappears during the week, goes into hibernation, reemerges for the weekend. <laughs> It doesn't exist at the store. No, I see it. And I just keep walking. Blinders. I think fish, the reason I, and I wanted to make this, because I think fish scares a lot of people. And I say yeah. in the video, it's because it has eyes. right? Like People are scared to look their food in the face. But I think it's really important to know what you're eating and where your food comes from. And the more you familiarize yourself with handling it and, and knowing, you know, what, what the different parts of the different animals taste like and how their muscle groups work you know it just makes you a better more informed cook so I love cooking whole fish one or teaching people how to do it one because I think it breaks down the barrier between what did this thing look like what does it exist like in the ocean and just sort of like treating things more humanely but also the whole fish is just the best way to know one if you're fresh if you're fresh as fish if your fish is fresh meaning the, a fishmonger, you know, can't deceive you into believing that the fish is fresh when it is not unlike a, a fillet of salmon where you might get it home and you smell it and you're like, is this fresh? No, I don't, I don't think so. If a, if a whole fish has really crystal clear looking eyes, like, you know, like a living, breathing adult human person. And when you touch it, the flesh kind of bounces back and it's shiny and it doesn't have much of a smell. Like, your fish is fresh. Oh, okay. So it's just an easy way to know off the bat. You can look at the thing and be like, I'm going to take that home and feed my family. That thing is looks great. So that, I think, is an important element of why we cook whole fish. But also, the bones impart flavor. The skin imparts flavor. Obviously, skin and fat is where most animal, you know, protein flavor comes from in the first place. So when we can leave more of that on, you're not adding any more work, but you're yielding way more flavor. So it's like, well, don't like, don't take away my skin and my bone. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> give it to me. It's just such a, it's an easy way to make sure that you're getting, you know, all the flavor and all the, all the benefits out of, out of your fish. Right. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And people should definitely go to Nosh with Tosh, but it's T-A-A-S-H dot com to see that recipe. Another one, which I've never heard of this, and I had to say, I, I should ha I have a show, Clean Eating, Dirty Sex, which is is just about, <laughs> you know, healthy, healthy living and sexuality and stuff and sex. But I'm looking at this and I'm going to make a terrible joke, but I'm like, spatchcock chicken with wine braised asparagus. We should be talking about 
<laughs> what the heck is a spatchcock? I'm like, what? We've never talked about this. I don't know what this is. Oh, <laughs> I couldn't resist. That's amazing. Can we switch podcasts real fast? <laughs> yeah, you just got to come on. But what, what? what is this? What is spatchcock chicken? Spatchcocking is another technique that I love where you – and this is the thing you can ask your butcher to do. What I'm about to say makes you want to scream and run for the hills. You just open up the back – so, it, you know, you have the side of the chicken with the breast and you have the side of the chicken without the breast. Okay. So all the spatchcocking requires is flipping your bird over so that we're looking at, you know, the legs and the wings. Right. And you snip – through the chicken and then you basically fold it over and right where the breastbone is as if you were the chiropractor for the bird you just push your hands down into the chicken and crack its breastbone ah, which uh-huh. lies the bird flat <laughs> okay i'm like okay i will ask now now so i can ask my butcher to do this and what is the benefit of this is it cook better does it like what what's happening we've got so many benefits First of all, when you cook the chicken with its full cavity, there's so much of the chicken that doesn't get crispy, right? If we're spatchcocking the chicken, you are greatly increasing the amount of skin and material that's getting either the bottom of the pan or the top of the pan. So we're getting way more crisp, which means we're getting more flavor. And also we're decreasing cooking time. So it's faster and it tastes better. Okay. And that's where you have the word braised. With braised, wine braised asparagus. Again, braising is just, you know, I, we, um, the first, I keep saying we as if I am like (laughs) cooking (laughs) with my, my alter ego. When I say that, um, I will first start off, you know, kind of cooking some shallots or something in a little bit of olive oil to get a nice yummy paste almost of the, the shallot. And I add in asparagus and then a little bit of wine and just re- quickly let the wine come up to a boil, reduce it to a simmer. And asparagus cooks so quickly that you can impart all these really delicious winey flavors into the asparagus just by cooking it in that in lieu of water, which is just a great tip for not taking any more time to cook something, but like really enhancing how it tastes. Oh, wow. Okay. And then, again, nice, crisp white wine goes so well with chicken. You know, if you're going to drink the white wine, but maybe you're not going to finish a whole bottle because it's just you or you and one other person and it's a weeknight or something. I don't know. Maybe you are. Whatever. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a great way to just, you know, it, just use it up. Um, I often do that. I'll, like, open a bottle of wine, use a little bit of it for cooking, and then drink the rest of it because, you know, using not wine that you wouldn't drink into your food is a misstep. Anytime you add anything into your food that doesn't taste good on its own, it's not really going to help your food. Oh, well, that's interesting. Okay. Expand on that a little bit. I, well, um, I, you know, I think that the better quality your ingredients are, the better your food tastes, right? The Alice Waters principle. If you just go get a delicious carrot at the farmer's market that tastes like a million bucks, you get to put some olive oil on it. And it's like, what did you do? This is magical. Like, no, it's just nature, right? <laughs> I'll take all the credit, but that was nature. So I always sort of like taste as I go and make sure that everything, all along the process, the thing is tasting good because it's very rare that you put a bunch of things together that you think taste bad and then it ends up being delicious. Right. Um, And so I think that it's just the same with all of your ingredients. If you drink a sip of wine and you're like, this is nasty, don't put it in your food. Right. (laughs) 
if you taste olive oil and you're like, this isn't good, like, don't cook with it. It's just, uh, you know, taste your ingredients and become familiar with them. And the whole process is so much easier and so much more enjoyable if you like all of the things that are going into the food that you prepare. Right. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Your Health with the wonderful Natasha Tosh Feldman. And I actually did make one of your recipes, uh, the ah. actually delicious GF chocolate chip cookies. And when I opened it up, I thought, I really hope she uses almond flour and coconut flour because like otherwise, and I figured you would. And I was like, yes. So my daughter and I call this cookie dough. And so before my husband and we made this, um, he would say, my, Lila's like, oh, can I have some cookie dough for breakfast? My husband was like, what? And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, this is almond flour, coconut flour, uh, just a little bit of honey, almond butter, you know, semi-sweet chocolate chips. It's great. And we, the thing is, we 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 could cook them, which we do sometimes, but we mostly just don't. <laughs> we mostly just eat it. Do you know anyone else Save who does that? Like, you just roll into a ball and just eat it. It's delicious. I mean, everybody does that. They're okay, lying. So people say they're not very <laughs> So that is really, really good. So tell us how you came up with that. And and let's and then I want to talk about that too, about recipe creation and what goes into that. But yeah. let's focus on this one because this is wow, so yummy. I'm so glad you liked them. This isn't again, I love taking a recipe and twisting it around a technique. So in this video I really reiterate, make your cookie dough and cook your cookies tomorrow. I know it's so hard to wait, but it's one of those things any chocolate chip cookie dough recipe, if you let that dough rest in the fridge overnight, the what happens to the flour, like the, the small amount of, you know, evaporation of liquids makes your cookie exactly when you see it in a restaurant and it's like crispy around the edge and it's a little bit taller in the center and it's somehow like gooey in the middle and crispy on the end, but it has like a really enhanced flavor and you're like, it's so vanilla-y. It's oh, the, the perfect vanilla. texture. Like, what is it? It's just a rested dough, right? Like, right. there are so many things that you can do that are just little tricks to make your food so much better. Right. And if you have the control here, right, you can do anything. You are a superwoman, right? But, like, oh rest God. your cookie dough and you yield the best cookie. So, especially when you want to make gluten-free baked goods right. because, you know, you're not dealing with gluten anymore and the, the sure. products can be a little bit more finicky. Yeah. I'm, I think resting it is just like, oh my gosh, best cookie you'll ever have. And for gluten-free baking, you know, it's finding the ratio of different flours to sort of mimic what an all-purpose flour would do. Right. It's not impossible. It's just a little trial and error. And I tried to take some of the trial out for people right. um, by creating this recipe. And, I, you know, I think that no matter what your dietary restrictions are, there's really great ways to eat. And I try to find recipes, you know, for everyone, like uh, somebody over here who maybe can't eat pepper. That's my uncle. Someone who can't eat pepper, someone who doesn't eat onions and garlic, someone who's dairy-free, which is my mom. Like, my cousin is celiac. So I'm always trying to, like, pull in recipes for these people that are close to me in my life. Right. And, um, and so finding a good gluten-free cookie was really important to me. Yeah, you know, I have made gluten-free cookies with almond flour and coconut flour before that are just, they just are kind of dry when you cook them. They don't, mm -hmm. so that resting, that was, that is good to know because I wasn't sure on that. All right, let's get matzo ball in. Um, I love this warning. There are Ferris, Ferris Bueller jokes and singing in this video, which is why I loved it so much. I had the best matzo balls of my life last Passover 
Um, I'm Jewish, yet I've never made matzo balls. My mom um, never cooked. She had a lot of food sensitivities. She was had a lot of chronic illness, and it was very hard. So we, I didn't wasn't raised with like anyone cooking, and so I've never attempted to make them. But it seems like whenever wow. we had them over the years at other people's seders, they just weren't that good. This one was amazing, <laughs> and so I'm gonna try this. Well, Passover not for a while, but I I'm gonna take my chance. Yours look really good. What is the secret to not having the heavy matzo ball? So <laughs> I love this. I love that anytime you go to a Passover Seder, you know that everyone's going to be like looking over and judging whether or not the matzo balls are sinking or floating. <laughs> it's like, totally. It's such a ridiculous mark. Like, look, I'll take matzo balls anyway. If you want to make me chicken soup, you know, right, Jewish kind of fill, and I'm going to eat it. Right, right. But, <laughs> but there are some things that you can do. One thing that I see people do is they basically, they're taking all of their aggression out on the matzo balls. You know, you're packing them so densely, like you're trying to make a, a baseball, right? And that is not what we want to do. You just want to, you want to treat your, your matzo ball like it was a meatball. We're just trying to get the general shape of it. And the shape doesn't even have to be perfect, right? And you just have to eat as much as you need to, and then it goes in the pot. Oh, okay. So you're not over fussing. I add... Um, schmaltz or chicken fat oh, to mine, mm-hmm. and and that also I think really that when you bolster the amount of like fat in them and you increase the flavor that is within the matzo ball itself, you're also really helping your your cause. And lastly, the thing that I think works well is resting it again, um, not nearly as long, but you've probably noticed or. Maybe witnessed other people doing this. It looks one way when you mix all your ingredients together, and it looks a completely different way 35 minutes later because the masa absorbs, you know, the eggs and the other things that you put inside of it. So it's really important to let it rest. So you let it rest in the fridge, and then you form them delicately. You can use wet hands or even oiled hands if you don't want it to stick, mm-hmm. and then it, you know, just. Just cooking them. Even if you add a little ginger, a little extra salt, a little bit of herbs into your matzo balls, you know, they're going to be 10 times more delicious, even if you use the Manischewitz mix. Ah, interesting. See, that's interesting. Yes, I've seen that mix. Well, you know, I usually don't even, I know I'm such a weirdo, I usually don't even eat white flour, except for like special occasions. So I'm like, I had to ask them, like, are those matzo balls good? Because if they're like heavy, like, forget it. They're like, they're insane. They're so good. And I saw everyone, oh my God. So I'm like, okay. And I'm the type when I like someone, I have no self-control or like something to eat. So I I must have eaten, I don't even know how many matzo balls. And that's great. It was, I made up for all the years that I didn't eat the matzo balls. It was so incredibly good. Good. Now let's talk a little bit about this millennial beet hummus. That I love the color, and um, Thank you. that was fun as well. So, so what is it about beets? Uh, I like that it's pink because that's different. Um, beets are so healthy. So let's talk about this beet hummus. When did you come up with this? This is a recipe that I came up with. Well, you know, everybody's making beet hummus. There's really nothing particularly exceptional about it. And, you know, I see it in restaurants all the time. People don't make hummus at home because it either is perceived as something that is really difficult or it's the thing that you just get in the tub that, like, kind of tastes mediocre. And I wanted to show, like, oh, this is actually a really easy way to make something that's 10 times more delicious than the one that you could buy is. And... It is not an expensive thing to produce, and it is 
always such a crowd pleaser. But on top of all of like the general ideas of like, why would I show someone how to make hummus at home or like, what are a few tricks to make it creamier and, and more awesome? The real reason I wanted to put this recipe into the beginning of the season is that I think as, as a millennial myself, we have gotten into this habit of sort of thinking that you eat beautiful food out um, and that, you know, if you see something and it's really pretty, it's really complicated and to stay away from it. And I wanted to show, like, this is a thing that you're seeing all over the place. And when you go to a restaurant and you spend 15 to, you know, $15 on your avocado toast or this pink hummus that comes in such a, such a sadly small quantity with, like, two crackers and two beautiful you know, vegetables from the farmer's market, like here are one of the areas where you actually can do this thing at home. You know, I'm all about like being really honest with people, but when there are times that you can save the money because this is just a thing that's easy to make and that is like looks complicated, I want to break it down. I want it to be really fast, really simple. And I want to show you in three and a half minutes that, you know, this is not the time and place where like you go out and you buy this thing. Like, you should make this at home if you want to have it. The $15 avocado toast. I mean, what's going on with that? And what, what what's your favorite way to make avocado toast? Oh, gosh. Well, don't even get me started on toast okay. because <laughs> I'm obsessed with toast. And I think we all need to take our toasters and throw them out the dang, dang window. <laughs> like, there is nothing worse to do to a piece of toast than put it in a toaster and dry it out. Oh, interesting. I, so what do you do? Pan toast, pan toast. Toasters are for old bagels. Pans are for toast. Really? Pans down. This yes. is that needs to be on a bumper sticker. <laughs> Toasters are for bagels. Pans are for toast. So how do you make toast in a pan? So I take, um, uh, you know, you can you can use a, a nonstick or a traditional pan, and I take I put it over a medium heat on my cooktop. And then add a little bit of, if I'm doing a savory toast, olive oil. And if I'm doing a sweet toast, butter. And you let that get hot. You put the toast in. You give it, you know, two minutes-ish on both sides, which just get it, like, crispy and crackly and beautifully, like, coated already. And it makes the outside crispy, but the inside is still super moist. It almost, like, brings the bread back to life rather than uniformly drying the bread out right? And then you can slather whatever on top of it. You don't even have to put anything on top of it. It's just the best toast you've ever had. The other thing is, if you can buy a toast, if you can buy bread that is not pre-sliced, a thicker slice of toast always tastes better. Okay. You know what is so funny? Just talking about toast. So this morning, I'm trying to make my daughter's lunch, and then she wanted some toast with peanut butter. And I know she's 14. She's incredibly spoiled. It's, she's like, she doesn't like the toaster, whatever. Anyway, so I'm like, whatever, I'll just make the toast. So I make a piece of toast. Then I'm busy making her lunch, and then I my husband put it way up on the toaster because he was making a, a sprouted English muffin. So the piece of toast burns. I'm like, okay. I did it twice in a row. I'm like, no. oh, my God, because I'm distracted doing something else. So I'm like, damn it. And my husband's like, oh, I put it all the way up. I'm like, ah. Okay, so then I put it where it goes, and it was fine. We got to have, like, a regular thing. You are such a gem. You're just absolutely gorgeous. Your food is amazing. I'm going to make your Thai pumpkin soup. You're going to come back in the next couple of weeks, I hope, and we can talk about it. And Heck I just, yeah. you're just an absolute gem, and you're delightful. So tell everybody all the ways they can find you. Thank you. So the 
best way to follow along with all the new recipes, find ways to make cooking at home like fun and easy and attainable is on my Instagram, which is just Nosh with Tosh and Tosh is T-A-S-H. And, uh, you know, something that a lot of people don't know um, is that I am your 24-7 Butterball Turkey Hotline. Oh, you burn nice. something in the middle of the night and you send me a direct message, guess what? You are getting a freaking reply. I have the push notifications turned on and I am available for anyone at any time when their cooking goes awry. Oh my um, gosh, that's that, awesome. That to me is the most fun part of my job, is being able to provide the recipes and then help people. So and that's the easiest way, but obviously my website houses a ton of recipes, which is noshwithtosh.com. Oh, and those are the two, uh, the YouTube, you know, I, I have all the videos on my website from YouTube. So oh, I think just the Instagram is like hands down the best way. Yes, um, but and the I followed also. you, by the way, while we were chatting because I'm so impressed. It's great. Thank you. But yeah, I love to, I love to like have the kinds of conversations that are like real life. This is the problem that happened to me. Um, and trying to solve for that. It really bothers me when you see a recipe and, you know, you, then you encounter an issue and it's not something that anyone had ever mentioned might happen. So utilize, I want people to utilize me for that. And I want to be able to help people make their cooking experience more pleasurable and fun. Well, you, you are absolutely awesome. Natasha, this has been so much fun. Please come back soon. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. This is wonderful. It's Your Health is sponsored by Bigelow Tea. Here is a message from Cindy Bigelow. She is a president of Bigelow Tea. People ask, what's our secret? How are we successful nearly 75 years after my grandmother started our tea company? Hi, I'm Cindy Bigelow, president of family-owned Bigelow Tea, and the answer is simple. We take years to perfect each tea recipe, then carefully wrap each tea bag in the perfect protective pouch so none of our special flavors escape and no air and moisture comes in. If you're going to take the time to craft the perfect recipe with quality ingredients, you need to protect it. So next time you have a cup of Bigelow Tea, do me a favor. Tear open the foil pouch, smell that aroma. That's our secret. To learn more, go to www.bigelotea.com. You can find us on Twitter at Naturally Savvy at Andrea Donsky at Health Media Gal 1. That's the number one. That's me. You can also find this show on It's Your Health with LisaDavis.com and other shows that I do. I want to thank everyone for listening.